Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. When William Barr announced the resumption of the federal death penalty after a 17-year hiatus, he wrote, quote, The Justice Department upholds the rule of law, and we owe it to the victims and their families to carry forward the sentence imposed by our justice system. This pronouncement came as a shock. Public support for capital punishment was waning, and many states had abolished or ceased the practice. The Trump administration conducted 13 executions in its final months, pummeling ahead despite serious legal objections. In the May issue, Caroline Lester writes about Dustin Higgs, the last man scheduled to die, whose sentence was carried out only days before Joe Biden was sworn into office. As Lester reveals, Higgs's case was irregular in several respects. He was convicted of a triple murder without any physical evidence in Maryland, a state that has since abolished the death penalty. I spoke with Lester about her experience reporting this difficult story, the history of the death penalty in the United States, and what changes we can expect in the new administration. Speaking at length to someone whose loved one has been sentenced to die strikes me as an incredibly difficult, delicate matter. How did you approach conversations with Dustin Higgs' sister, Alexa, and others who were close to him? Yeah, that is a really good question. So I think it's important to note that there were two things going on, right? Um, The first is that you know, in those conversations, you're talking to people who are grieving, who just lost someone they love. And then the other thing that's happening is that you're, you're also talking to somebody who just went through an incredibly traumatic experience. Because I think the the act of watching an execution, even if you don't know the person and don't have a close relationship with them is, has been described as extremely upsetting. And then to, you know, to have it be your brother is a whole other level conversations with Alexa were different from conversations with Yusuf, who also, you know, as a spiritual advisor was in the room, also went through a traumatic experience, but it was different. You know, those conversations were different from Dustin's lawyers who who knew him, but it was a different level, obviously, to be related. But so I also work as a rape crisis counselor. So I've been trained with all of these different ways of how to interview somebody who's experienced a trauma or talk to somebody about it. And, you know, at the the core of that is just recognizing that this is a human being who's experienced something that you really can't understand and giving them space to say and process and be who they want. I think the other thing is that, like, you know, when you're grieving, when you lose somebody you love, I have found, and I think maybe for Alexa, I don't want to speak for her, but a big part of that is talking about who they were as a person which is something that Dustin, you know, you lose your personhood a little bit when you're sentenced to death and you're kept in federal prison for a really long time. And I think to, for her to be able to talk about that was hopefully a good thing and a nice thing. And then when you're having conversations with people about traumatic events, which again was the case with pretty much everybody I interviewed who witnessed the execution also, you know, you just stick with these little techniques like 
you don't end a conversation really abruptly. You ask what they're going to do to take care of themselves after. You do all these things to sort of wind down from that moment that I guess it's our job to bring somebody into, but it's it's brutal. Yeah. You mentioned Yusuf, who served as Dustin's spiritual guide. It's also referred to sometimes as a spiritual representative. Right. Spiritual representative, spiritual advisor, uh, minister of record is the yeah. Bureau of Prisons lingo. I mean, his his descriptions of how he felt he was being there for Dustin, but then also he was kind of part of, as he said, this 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 theater, this pageant of pretending like this is somehow okay when it's not okay. Could you talk about the role that spiritual representatives play in other executions? And how has Yusuf's experience of being inside the chamber next to those men, you know, uh, as they were killed, shaped his life outside of that role? Yeah, um, great questions. So there's a history to spiritual advisors in the U.S., and it there hasn't been a lot of legal writing about them. But basically, 18th century, 19th century, spiritual advisors were used to sort of elicit confessions and help legitimize public executions. So, mm. you know, you would be standing there next to whoever was reading the sentence. You'd give a speech beforehand, a sermon or whatever. You'd make a statement about sort of how the executionee, the condemned person, you know, violated God's law. And in doing so, you both sort of, it, it worked two ways, right? You were legitimizing the state's actions to execute. And then you were also being doubly legitimized as like, this is what happens when you sin. This is why you stick to the religious script or whatever. <laughs> but when executions were moved inside the prison walls and became much more private, the role of a spiritual advisor was much more of a sort of a confessional. You were there to sort of help that person, providing them with some semblance or chance to sort of absolve themselves before they were executed. And now, like most importantly now, spiritual advisors are the only people in that room who are not involved in killing you. They're the only people who aren't involved in the execution or who are trying to execute you. And so... I mean, that role is just, <laughs> when you hear that, I think that probably elicits a lot of emotions and reactions, and that part is still sort of mind-blowing to me. And so for some of the spiritual advisors, some people had long-term relationships with somebody outside of prison, right? You're on death row for, for decades, usually. And so they developed individual relationships with their own spiritual advisors, but Yusuf, his story was pretty nuts. So Orlando Hall got an execution date in the fall, and he was Sunni. And the spiritual advisor that the prison offered, because the prison, you know, puts forth a spiritual advisor option, he told Yusuf that that spiritual advisor was, quote, to government. Mm. And so an activist reached out to Yusuf's uh, mosque to ask if there was anybody who would be willing to serve as a spiritual advisor to this man. And Yusuf got the email. He waited a week and then he responded and said, has anybody, you know, has anybody gotten back to you? And the answer was no. And so he sort of found himself in this role. Mm. And that is 
in a in a strange way the story of almost everybody in Terre Haute, right? It is it's almost random how people get there. But so Yusuf's like day job. <laughs> he he's a professor at uh, Indiana University. He's a business professor and he's a wonderful man, just a really, you know, incredible, very kind, um, extremely well-read, loves reading. Um, he grew up as an orphan in Somalia, um, emigrated to the U.S., and has lived here now since the 80s. But he, you know, I called him last night when I knew that we would be talking mm-hmm. because, I ha- you know, I hadn't explicitly asked him. And it's now it's been some months, right? When we were first talking, it was right after these two executions that he served as a spiritual advisor for. And I, I asked him, like, what's changed? And he told me that he thinks now he thinks about his life in pre-execution and post-execution. Mm. It's it's changed him so much. And he um, like I said, he's a really prolific reader. But since September, which is I think it was September when he was first first got in touch with Orlando Hall. Um, He's read 17 books. They're all about what he says, the African-American experience, except for one book. But he just went through the stage of reading as much as he could about race in the U.S. And he told me that the, you know, the more he reads, the more, I think he used the word disgusted. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but sort of horrified he is about how this country was founded. And he said he's, you know, the one thing I know he said is that he's not going to look at America the same way anymore. And for him, America post witnessing the executions is very different than before. Another thing that's important to note is that Yusuf got COVID at Orlando's execution. And I'm sorry, I feel like I, I like I'm half laughing when I'm telling you these things because it's just so, you know, it's so absurd to me. Um, and that's how I deal with absurdity. But it probably doesn't translate very well. But yeah, Yusuf got COVID likely, almost certainly from Orlando Hall's execution. Uh, he was in that room with three other people and Orlando Hall. I think that the Bureau of Prisons representatives were told that they had to be masked the whole time, but they were not. Mm. And something happened and he got COVID. And that, you know, that was kind of like widely reported on. It was, it was like a big story because it was becoming very clear that these executions ended up being super spreader events. But he's a really avid biker. And so he, you know, he biked, I don't know, like 20 miles a day. He, he just sort of kept himself in shape. But he told me that, you know, he thought he escaped unscathed. And then he's sort of grown to realize that he has these lingering neurological symptoms. So he has ringing in his ears. He's, he's feeling these sensations that he can't in, in his like brain that he, he, he had a lot of trouble describing them. The idea of Yusuf having trouble describing something is very surprising to me. Jesus. We've talked a lot and he's extremely... Um, He's just like a beautiful talker. But yeah, so, so you know, there's, there's the emotional and mental experience of going through that and the way that affects you. And then there is the literal uh, physical post-COVID uh, 
long COVID symptoms. Yeah. Um, no, and I mean, I think, you know, it's it's incredibly difficult to bear witness to these things. Obviously, Yusuf was incredibly close to bearing witness. But when you are reading this article, you're also, it's a form of bearing witness. Not, not nearly as close, mm. obviously. But that, I don't know what, what he said about thinking very differently about the United States and, you know, how it was founded and its relationship to race. I mean, I think if you read this story and you read more about, uh, particularly what, um, I mean, we'll get into this later, but the statistics about mm. who who gets the death penalty and who does not, it only makes sense that she would kind of take that away from something like this. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm glad to hear that it it landed like that. I mean, something that struck me while reporting this story is how hidden this all is. Right. And it is in, in many states, 24 states, um, still have state-level death penalties. We still have a federal death penalty, and it's baked into our legal system. And in a way, we're all sort of I think what I was trying to convey is that if it's in our legal system, then we are in some ways just as responsible as anybody else, right? This is this is something that we are allowing to continue on public dime, public effort. Yeah. Speaking of the legal system and how this relates to larger aspects of this country, Sean Nolan, who is Dustin's lead attorney, um, was one of the many people trying to fight against the Trump administration's gruesome return to federal executions. And I have no reservations about using the word gruesome because doctors have testified that pentobarbital causes excruciating pain. It is not a, a, a painless death. And because of lingering damage from COVID-19, which Dustin... Corey Johnson, another the, the man who was scheduled to die before Dustin and many other death row inmates, have, as you've described, had those lingering effects. And COVID-19 just intensifies that pain. Um, so Sean and other lawyers appealing these executions were blocked at every turn by the Department of Justice. Uh, and that was not just during the Trump administration. That was also after William Barr had departed. How would you characterize how Sean and the other lawyers like him dealt with these rejections legally and emotionally? Yeah, um, that's a very good question. I do. I want to make one. Um, I want to specify one thing, though, um, which you said mm -hmm. that Sean and other lawyers appealing those executions were were sort of thwarted by um the DOJ, the Justice Department. But the other thing, the other huge part of this was the Supreme Court. And the, the way the Supreme Court was operating during this time was pretty much unprecedented. And and I'll explain that in a minute, but, but it's super important to understand the role of the Supreme Court here. So Sean, you know, he's obviously an extremely good, talented lawyer. You don't get to this level without being a very good lawyer. He was also really even keeled. He's a really steady, solid guy. And I think my impression is that you kind of have to be to be 
doing this kind of work for so long. But everyone, Sean including, but, you know, every lawyer I spoke to was amazed isn't the right word. It's something like uh, was just stunned by how the legal system and the courts were operating. They, they like they were so brutal. Yeah. So many of the cases basically the way the way an appeals process works with the death penalty cases with these death penalty cases is that so the justice department chooses who to execute when to execute them and how to execute them and it's up to the court system so local the the different layers of federal courts all the way up to the supreme court to rule on the challenges that these condemned people are bringing to those to those Justice Department actions. And so the way the Justice Department acted was, you know, both surprising and not very surprising. Um, Trump was, his whole thing was being a law and order president. Uh, William Barr was, and Jeff Sessions uh, were pretty explicit about how they viewed the criminal legal system, which was as punishment and retribution and a, and a way to wield power. And so executing, announcing the execution of 13 people at the end of an, an administration, which is completely historically unprecedented, you know, that was a way of showing power and strength. And so that was sort of horrifying, but not that surprising. But the thing that happened is when all of these legal challenges to the DOJ reached the Supreme Court, many of them were dismissed or, or the original ruling was upheld. So, so the appeal was dismissed without any kind of ruling whatsoever. So you, you would just know that your appeal had been denied. You wouldn't know on what grounds or why often. In one case, and this is, you know, this is back to the DOJ, a man was executed while an appeal was still pending. Oh, and geez. I mean, that's just unprecedented. And then it sort of came to a, the last three cases, the last three people who were executed were particularly the way their cases were treated by the legal, the legal system were particularly horrifying. And in the case of Dustin, Sean had a really good legal argument. And in fact, he had such a good legal argument that uh, a lower court, a district court, ruled that his argument needed to be looked at. And I can explain that argument in a second if that's helpful. Um, so there was a pause put on Dustin's execution. The ruling was, okay, Sean Nolan and Dustin Higgs have a pretty good argument that what is about to happen to him is unconstitutional. And so we're going to halt the execution. We're going to wait, you know, a couple of weeks and we're going to hold a hearing to learn more about that. Um, and to Sean and Dustin, that was a really big win because all you needed was six days before Trump left office. And the assumption would was and continues to be that Joe Biden won't execute anybody. But the DOJ pushed to have something called basically cert before judgment. They requested that the Supreme Court 
overrule the lower courts and push past this this appeals process and continue forth with the execution. And that the idea is that you you ask for cert before judgment. You basically are asking for like punishment punishment before the legal system has finished looking at the case. You only do that in things that are of quote such imperative public importance as to justify a deviation from a normal appellate practice. And and so they did. And they overruled the lower courts. They went forth on the execution and Dustin Higgs had a really good argument for why and it's it's not just me saying that. This is a a federal judge had ruled that there was a really good argument for why he needed a second look. And that was just yeah, I think I think uh, I spoke to a lawyer who told me that he had I think never been more afraid of the government than he was after those last seven months of just watching this process of the executions. They were just yeah pushed through. Right. And the appeal that you're alluding to was is based on a legal question that has really never been put forward before because federal law dictates that prisoners should be executed according to the rules of the state where they were sentenced. Mm-hmm. And Dustin was sentenced in Maryland mm-hmm. and they had ended the death penalty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when the Department of Justice asked the asked the Supreme Court to override the lower court that had given Dustin a stay of execution, that's totally new legal territory. Mm-hmm. So this question still remains. And now with Virginia, where the first recorded execution in the colonies took place, it's it's been it's been executing people for the longest out of any state. They ended capital punishment and commuted death sentences to life in prison, except for those who were convicted of federal crimes. So what are the chances that the Supreme Court or other courts will hear, will actually hear this appeal? Or are Virginia's federal prisoners' fates sealed? You know, I, I can't tell you what the chances are um, because I just don't know. But I, I mean, this is a legitimate legal question, right? And I don't think that there was a explanation from the Supreme Court on why they overruled lower courts. So we still don't really understand why they denied that, which means that there's room for further legal argument, right? When you don't release any reasoning, which is what the Supreme Court did, there's some room to sort of challenge it again. But, you know, as we're talking about this, I think it's important to understand there's six people on federal death row who were convicted in Virginia. So there are six people who could, you know, potentially have their sentences commuted to life because of this question. And it wasn't just Dustin Higgs. And so to to sort of bulldoze that is a really, I mean, that's a very bold mood by the Supreme Court. Yeah. It's a, it is an unresolved legal question. You quoted that lawyer who said he was like terrified of the government after this experience. I mean, it's, I know everybody's exhausted after Trump, after four years of Trump, understandably so. But 
people need to stay vigilant for reasons like this, right? Where they're, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court is packed. The judges chose to push this thing through to, to, to not allow justice to be served, which is really, it's scary. It is scary. There's no other way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, earlier we were talking about, we were talking about how, you know, you felt like you were bearing witness to this thing. And I think for most people, you assume that, you know, we all know, we're all starting to have an idea of how messed up the criminal legal system is, right? All these ways in which it fails. But when it comes to the death penalty, I think most people assume that these are people who did really horrible things, who were, we all know they did really horrible things because the death penalty is the worst. It's, you know, it's reserved for the worst of the worst. And, you know, we may, we may may not like the criminal legal system and the way it operates, but these are the people, you know, this is where it's very rare. And these are the people who really deserve it. I believe, well, I was just going to say as an aside, I believe that when the Trump administration announced that they were resuming federal executions, they mentioned that one of the people to be executed was convicted of pedophilia. Yeah. Like it was a very clear, like, these people don't ask questions. These people are the bad people. They have violated the law of this land and some larger spiritual law. And they deserve, they deserve this. All of them deserve this. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm not here to defend. There are some people who did horrible things. Absolutely. Yeah. Horrible, horrible crimes represented on death row. But there are also people who, again, like Dustin Higgs, but beyond him also, like Brendan Bernard, for example, who who didn't kill anybody. Right. They were they were part of a I guess Brandon Bernard is like a little bit in question, but he. It, it is widely agreed that he did not knowingly kill anybody. But they were these these are not cut and dry cases. These are these are not people where you knew exactly what happened and and who did it and how and how it happened. A lot I think I think death penalty cases uh, have some of the highest rates of overturning convictions because prosecutors and police are under so much pressure to find out who committed these crimes that they'll they'll just kind of pin it on whoever is there. And I think I mean even as I'm saying this, right, we're getting into this territory of of measuring whether or not somebody was guilty and the larger question is even if somebody's guilty, even if they did something terrible, is the state equipped to make make the choice that they don't deserve to live anymore? Right? Right. And that, you know, a lot of people argue that that is that's not the case. And also the other big question being like, is there something someone can do that is so bad that they're they're no longer human? They deserve to die. And I mean, that's obviously that's that's what the death penalty is. But also it's it is dehumanizing. I mean, there's a reason why we're one of the last few countries that permit this, because other countries have come to a different conclusion than we have yeah on that question um and i do i mean i also want to say like i personally don't have that opinion but some people do 
I think a lot, I think a lot of people do actually. But at the end of the day, the system does not seem to have been designed well enough to make sure that those are the only people or the only cases or whatever that receive the death penalty. It's, it's clear that it's not. Right. Well, when I was looking up Virginia's decision, Mm -hmm. um, they broke the numbers down and it was, um, you know, during the 20th century, 78% of the executions that took place in that state were black men. Yeah. And of those who were sentenced to death, white men who had committed rape, there were certain crimes where white men were not executed when black men were. Yes. Again, it's like it's somebody might want to excuse this as saying like, this this person has done something so awful. But when you look at the numbers and you see something like that, it's like something else is happening. Yeah, here. absolutely. You cannot think about the death penalty and uh, separate that from racism. You know, there was this brief four year period in the 70s where the death penalty had been declared unconstitutional and executions all over the U.S. were halted and and stopped. And and uh, it was amazing. And the the argument that won that was the NAACP legal defense team. They basically challenged the whole idea of capital punishment by pointing to the fact that it was incredibly racially biased. So before 1972, states all had their own, a little like today in some ways, they had their own ways of determining whether or not somebody was eligible for the death penalty and then how how they were sentenced. And so uh, you mentioned that in Virginia, the death penalty could be used in murder cases, but also cases like robbery and rape. And I mean, in 1954, rape was a capital crime in 18 states. 16 of them were Southern. And of the 771 people who were executed for rape between 1870 and 1950, 701 of them were Black. It just... You, you can't look at those numbers and not say that they that the death penalty was discriminating against black people. It was ruled unconstitutional because it was cruel and unusual. And the idea was that it was, I think the famous line is that it was cruel and unusual, like being hit by lightning is cruel and unusual. And the idea there is that it was just deployed entirely randomly. But by being so random, it became extremely discriminatory. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So in those four years where capital punishment was abolished, all of these states tried to figure out ways to make it less arbitrary, to sort of get rid of that deficit between, you know, where like the vast majority of people being executed were black men. What a lot of those laws did, and it, they ended up being sort of very cleverly successful, was that they, they figured out a way to make this less on the surface arbitrary. So now instead of like something around... 90% of executions involving black men. And it's now 41% of death row inmates are black, but 76% of capital crimes victims are white. So it's still obviously skewed towards convicting black people, 
but it's also skewed towards valuing white life more. Mm-hmm. And that that trick, that sort of legal sleight of the hand is just, I think, important to understand when we think about sort of how the death penalty was used in the past, which was basically as a way of punishing black people and how it's being used now. In the piece, you cite legal scholar Austin Surratt, who's who's written about this phenomenon of trying to legitimize the death penalty and make it seem less like murder and less like lynching. Mm. And the legal strategy you're describing, you can see that with regards to voting rights. Mm. The flurry of legislation about uh, abortion, they do a good job of hiding what the intent is, even though the intent is also very obvious. Mm. But leaving that aside for a second, at the, near the beginning of the piece, you describe the execution of Dustin Higgs as, quote, possibly the final federal execution of the modern era. Mm. Can you tell us what's been going on with the death penalty at the federal level since Higgs's execution and what Biden has been doing to uh, or not doing to address this? Oh, gosh. Yeah. The first thing um, is it's important to note that until Trump's spree, federal execution rates were way down. It was it was being phased out, I think, is the best way of thinking of it. Um, And this some of the legal scholars I spoke to sort of viewed what was happening as sort of like a horrific anomaly because the trend has been moving towards no federal executions or a lot less of them. Um, and everybody told me that it was simply a matter of time before federal executions and executions in general would be phased out. Um, it's unclear how long that time is. Joe Biden, uh, when he was running for president, was the first presidential candidate, the first successful presidential candidate to come out against the death penalty explicitly. And that is a huge change from where he was in the past. Right. He helped, yeah, he helped craft the the bills that I think every single person who was executed under the Trump administration were executed under those laws. Dustin Higgs definitely was. Hmm. So it is a very, it is a huge both politically, a very big moment for somebody to come out and say that. And then when you look at it in the history of Joe Biden, a really, a really big turn. His his uh, attorney general, Merrick Garland, also was part of the team, I think led the team that executed Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, or sought the, the death penalty successfully. And then Kamala Harris has always been kind of hard to pin down about her opinions on the death penalty. So so understanding that, knowing that Biden had sort of set himself up to to announce that he was going to put a hold on federal executions, so far nothing has happened. And I know, you know, a bunch of sources I had who who were working in the activism, anti-death penalty activism space said that Joe Biden's people had reached out to them, said that he was going to, you know, it was a priority within his first 100 days to to announce a pause on federal executions. And then we're sort of told that they had to be patient and wait a little longer. So it's looking like, uh, yeah, I have no idea what's going to happen. For a while, it looked like Biden was going to be the first president to take a stand against this, right. or at least a more explicit stand than, than Obama. Um, but the other thing to note is like, 
two things. So there are, there are federal executions and there are state executions, and the, the vast majority of executions occur at a state level. So the only way for those executions to end, for capital punish, state level capital punishment to end, is either by the Supreme Court ruling that it is unconstitutional, which looking at the current Supreme Court, I don't, I don't see that happening. Mm. And the way that they behaved in the past, you know, in those seven months, I don't see that happening. Or states to individually abolish it, like Virginia. The federal death penalty, again, can be abolished if the Supreme Court rules it unconstitutional. Or if Congress abolishes it. And so whatever Joe Biden does, it's a temporary fix. It's going to last as long as he's in office. And it it would be a signal, a political signal to right now the Democratic controlled Congress. But it it wouldn't abolish the federal death penalty permanently. Right. And Dick Durbin and Ayanna Presley have proposed legislation that would physically dismantle the facility at Terre Haute. Could you lay out what that plan looks like and what, you know, what its genesis was? Uh, because I understand that you spoke with Presley and her office for this piece. Gosh, so that is a very good question. And um, yes, I did. I did communicate with Congresswoman Presley about this. And um, there is not a concrete plan of what that would look like. She told me that um, she sees Terre Haute as a, a place of, of deep hurt and a physical representation of the kind of injustices the government has inflicted. Mm-hmm. So she feels this is part of a larger bill that she and Dick Durbin have put forth to abolish the death penalty. The, the way she put it is to dismantle the death penalty. We must also dismantle the facility. And uh, it's true that a lot, just in general, a lot of the death penalty abolitionist movement has been focused on attacking the methods of execution, which are highly controlled and therefore in some ways kind of vulnerable, right? So you you make it so that uh, you can't get the drugs that you need to execute somebody. And so executions are paused. Right. Um, and so the physical dismantling of Terre Haute maybe in some ways would make it more difficult to bring it back. But I think also it's this larger question of what do you do with a place that was, yeah, a place of so much pain uh, and injustice? How do you, how do you recognize that, or move beyond it, or what are the next steps? But there's not there's no clear plan of exactly what would go in its place. Because when you say the physical dismantlement, it's not it's not I, it's not so much a question of like, will this be turned into like a a memorial of some kind or it will be, you know, the land would be repurposed somehow, but just it would be physically dismantled. And and I'm just curious by what process would that take? I mean, it, it, or if it's totally banal, then you don't have to talk about it. You know, I don't know. It's not banal. I mean, the one thing I will say is that the, the death house is, is what it's called. It's like a small, low, windowless building on the corner of this really large federal prison. It's on the grounds of this prison. This is a, I think a maximum and a medium, or maybe a maximum and a minimum security prison. So these two really big compounds. Um, so you you know, you can dismantle the, the death chamber, but 
it's going to be on these giant prison grounds. So I don't, I don't know what that would look like. And I don't, you know, you're, you can't really walk into a prison, especially a maximum security prison. So I, I don't know how that would be memorialized or what that would look like. Yeah. And I understand the Bureau of Prisons it was very hard to get information from in your reporting process. Oh, yeah. As they have been generally with other journalists. So how did you navigate that while reporting this piece? I mean, I, you know, I just tried to report it. Right. Um, and then, you know, even even pretty benign questions. You know, I sent them a list of questions, some some pretty basic. I, I think something like how many people are involved in an execution? Um, basic, basic stuff. And then, to be fair, some some more difficult questions for them to answer. Um, and every single one was met with a FOIA, uh, uh, basically telling me that I would need to FOIA for that information. Can you talk quickly about the what a FOIA is and like the process yeah. of doing that? Oh, the process is totally nuts right now, specifically um, because mm -hmm. of. Well, actually, I'm, I'm not sure. But under the Trump administration and the um, the pandemic, it was just I FOIA. A FOIA is basically um, it stands for Freedom of Information Act. And it basically means you have to request very specific records about about a government uh, agency's behavior, whatever information regarding the government that then goes through the, this process of a bunch of people looking at it and being like, OK, we can answer this or we can't answer that. And that takes, um, the last time I FOIA'd something, I think it took like six months, seven months. And that's pretty short. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was pre-pandemic times. That It is pretty short. And it it's basically like, it's a way of a government agency to... It is uh, reducing the flow in, of information. Yeah. Yeah. Just as refusing to answer very basic questions about who the executioners were. And how they were contracted and things well, things of that nature. Yes. And who executioners are is uh, something that is kept extremely secret. It is one of the things about executions that the government guards more closely than anything else, um, protecting the privacy of these individuals. And I mean, I I can understand that. I don't think anybody would volunteer for that, that job uh, if they knew it would get out. Right. And amazingly, I, I still I don't totally understand how this happened, but um, the identity of one of the executioners got out in February. Oh. This guy named Eric Williams, um, who was a, appointed interim warden at at a prison in in New York City. Um, that was a very famous prison because that's where Jeffrey Epstein died. And we know the AP has confirmed that. This man, Eric Williams, was present at at least five executions, including William LaCroix and Brandon Bernard. We know how he behaved at those executions, too. But. Uh, well, what, what do you what is that? What is that? What do you mean by that? Gosh, the way the AP described it, um, the AP made it seem like he was a particularly callous executioner. And for this for the story, I spoke to people who had been involved in executions um, on the prison end, off the record. And I mean, for some people, it's a job, right? Or it's a belief in a, you know, you believe that you're, you're doing what needs to be done in a criminal justice system, a criminal legal system. And um, 
for other people, I think it, it it's probably some form of sadism, you know, but yeah. for some people, they truly believe that they're doing a job that needs to be done. The way they described, the AP described this, uh, this man, Eric Williams, as particularly callous, which was an interesting choice on their part. But anyway, so we do know the identity of, of one of these executioners. But that's that's usually very, very zealously protected by the U.S. government. And that's not and that's not something I was interested in finding out personally. No, um, it's totally understandable why you would not want to touch that. Well, I think I think the other thing about this whole story and system is that, like, the way the death penalty in an execution, both the the sentencing and actual execution of somebody who's been convicted of a capital crime works, is that the responsibility is diffused across so many actors and characters. Even in the execution chamber, you have, if, if it's done by firing squad, there are five people shooting a gun, which is how it's done in, in Utah still, and I think potentially oh. some other states. You have five people firing guns, and four of them are blanks. In a lot of uh, lethal injection chambers, it's set up so that you have um, two people pressing buttons, two separate buttons. And one of those buttons is, I think, like saline, and one of them is the actual cocktail, is what they call it, um, the lethal injection drugs, mixture of drugs. Um, and so so even down to the very act of, of killing somebody, blame is diffused as much as possible. And part of that, I think, is... You know, there's some psychological protection, I think, likely built into all of this, because even I imagine that there are people in the government who understand that there are some serious uh, there can be some serious effects for psychological effects um, if you partake in this. And I think part of that is also to, you know, it diffuses blame. And, and this is what I was sort of trying to say earlier, which is that I don't I don't know about being in the chamber, but it is important to understand how capital punishment works and exactly what it looks like because the entire system is complicit and as people who exist in this criminal justice system who elect people to power i think we're complicit too right the whole way an execution occurs is is to create this sort of myth of you know this myth that what is happening is is just and and fair and right and not barbaric and I understand, I understand if you believe in that myth, right, that it's painless, that only the worst people are executed. I understand why you would support the death penalty, that it's fair. But that's not the case. It's, it's just not the case. Yeah. And we've kind of talked about how this comes into play with conviction. Are there other ways in which prejudice creeps in to this to this whole process so if you look at the the last three people who were executed lisa montgomery the only woman who was executed Corey johnson and dustin higgs they were all these really um they were examples of how you would expect in an ideal world an idealized world for that that if if you believe in the death penalty you would expect that these people would not be executed Dustin Higgs did not pull any triggers. He didn't kill anybody. Corey Johnson was intellectually impaired. 
and there there has been a Supreme Court w- ruling that you cannot execute somebody who is intellectually impaired. And for a variety of reasons, Corey Johnson was. But he he had trouble tying his own shoes. He tried for for 20 years to get his GED. He um, he struggled with reading and writing. And in his um, final statement, his last words, he spoke about his family and he said, your love has made me real, which is a reference from The Velveteen Rabbit, which is a children's book that was the last book that um, his spiritual advisor read to him, which is both really beautiful and... Mm-hmm. The, the idea that somebody's love can make you real, it's just a, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And it is also maybe an indication that Corey Johnson was not totally mentally competent. And then Lisa Montgomery was in a completely dissociative state. So she, you know, I mentioned earlier, I work as a rape crisis counselor. I spoke to a lot of lawyers who worked on the death penalty for this. And the level of, of abuse that Lisa Montgomery faced, uh, sexual abuse, was just at a level it was it was horrific it was it was beyond what people see even in the criminal legal system which can already you know is already filled with a lot of really intense cases so she was at the time of her execution i mean she wasn't really responding to to questions or or she was disassociative she didn't she didn't really know what was going on and you were also you know not supposed to execute people who are uh oh my god i'm blanking on the word well it's an issue of mental competence again right yes yeah it's mental competence but also uh insanity you know whatever that definition means which is like a little uh squirmy or squirrely like she didn't she did not seem to fit the definition of sane these are these are cases that you think would you know, if the legal system is working in the way that it's supposed to, these cases would be caught. These people wouldn't wouldn't be executed. And that just that just didn't happen. Yeah. Oof. Those the last three were really awful. I mean, they were all pretty bad. I really can't think about um, Corey Johnson's last words without yeah. getting very emotional. Um, in a way, again, that's like journalists are supposed to be objective, but. I don't know. You're dealing with somebody's life. It's, I mean. And I, you know, I think it is also like we've had all these, we've had a lot of conversations about, you know, the people who are killed, who are executed. It's also so important to acknowledge that these people were involved in awful crimes. And Lisa Montgomery and Corey Johnson both killed people. And um, there are victims in these stories, too. Victims, both the people who are executed, but also the people who are killed by them. And I, I, uh, I'm not here to demonize or pass judgment, but I think it's important to recognize that that those voices are are out there, and um, in the case of Aston's case, those three women, I reached out to their families, and they they didn't want to talk, and I completely understand that. Right. It is so hard to talk about these things. <laughs> Yes, it really is. It's just sad all around. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing about in general when when trying to not necessarily abolition but just sort of trying to think about crime in a in a not not again as you say, not to get anybody off the hook, but to just 
it's kind of or excuse what they did in some way some like mushy <laughs> mushy bleeding heart liberal ways that's that that's not what i'm talking about but just to think about them in a more holistic way yeah i mean you know the heart these stories all start with a horrible tragedy and those those are the people who who were killed and that's i mean it's awful one of you know one of the things um when you talk about the criminal legal system that I, I think about, one of the people I spoke with is um, this professor and philosopher um, and writer, Austin Surratt, um, who is, you know, totally brilliant. And one of the things that he pointed out is that there's been this strange marriage between abolishing the death penalty and sort of abolitionists for the death penalty and people who and advocating for sort of life in prison to get your sentence commuted to life in prison as a is a big win in many ways. And then also, um, you know, you're spending your whole life in prison. I, I don't think you're getting off scot-free if, you're, if your execution is commuted to a life sentence. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to discuss? You know, one thing that I, I realized when I was reporting this is that these, in the case of the men, Lisa Montgomery was housed somewhere else. They all, they had a, a community on on death row they all sort of lived lived there together and kind of grew up together these everybody is there for decades and decades and the person that you are when you enter and the person that you are when you leave i think i think you end up being very different people and that is tough it's tough yeah yeah You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 